0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Senior Producer Connor Boyle. For today's episode, we're going to a discussion on how to stay healthy into advancing years. Back in 2020, Intelligence Squared was joined by neuroscientist and bestselling author Daniel Levitin to discuss the ideas from his book, The Changing Mind, a neuroscientist's guide to ageing well. Joining Daniel in conversation was journalist, author and former director of policy for Prime Minister David Cameron, Camilla Cavendish. She's the author of Extra Time, 10 Lessons for Living Longer, Better. This is part one of a three-part discussion. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy the rest of the episodes immediately, you can support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations by heading to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or by subscribing to our channel on Apple. Let's join Camilla Cavendish with more.
2: So we're going to try and have a conversation um, <laughs> really about how to live longer better um, with a particular focus on the brain. And I'm going to sort of ask the questions, but we're going to try and make it a conversation, and then we'll open up to the floor um, just before 8 o'clock. So, I suppose I wanted to frame the discussion down in a way by saying that you and I actually have a lot in common. We do. Um, And we're both optimists. Although I never
3: worked at number 10.
2: No, well, apart from that. (laughs) But in terms of our views on this subject, I think, you know, we're both optimists about what I call extra time, you know, this extended middle age, this longevity, but we're also pragmatists. So I think that we both have a certain sceptical view about looking properly at the evidence and trying to um, you know look at some of the fads that are out there. And you make some very important warnings in your book about some of the fads that we should not be following. Um, and I think we both are seeking to live longer but not necessarily longer and better rather than living forever. So you know there are Silicon Valley billionaires who talk about escape velocity from death. Um, and I'm fairly sceptical about them, I think you are too. And I think we are both about the health span, which is a word you use a lot, improving the health span. So those last 20, 30 decades, you know, how are we going to make 20, 30 years, how are we going to make them better? Um, and then I think we both agree that actually exercise is vital. Um, one group of uh, septuagenarians I met in Illinois are now 30 years biologically younger than their chronological age Not because they're professional marathon runners, but because they basically took the fad that your friend Jane Fonda created many, many years ago, and they've just kept exercising ever since. And I think that's a sort of revolutionary thing.
3: Um, And Jane started doing strength training, actually. uh Aha,
2: there you are. Exactly. So, can we start with the brain, which is your area of most expertise? And how worried should I be that on the way here, I couldn't find my keys?
3: I don't think worried at all. Um, if you look at your key, once you find it, and you forget what it's for, <laughs> yeah, that might be the time to worry, uh, but you know, you know, one of the myths about aging is that uh, memory starts to fail us, and that's not borne out by the research. Um, and there's an overlay here having to do with the stories we tell ourselves. So as a college professor, uh, as each of us are teaching college students, uh, we both see a lot of 20-year-olds, and I can tell you 20-year-olds are losing their keys too. <laughs> and they forget their computer passwords, and they um, uh, f- you know, forget um, their cell phone, or they lose it. 70-year-olds do it no evidence that a 70-year-old does it more than a 20-year-old. What's different is the story we tell ourselves. When the 20-year-old loses their keys, they go, oh man, I got to get more than five and a half hours of sleep, or I've got too much on my plate. The 70-year-old says, this is the end. It's Alzheimer's. I know it. (laughs) there are some things that do decline with age, aren't there? So what are those? Well, sure. Uh, strength declines, uh, bone mass, muscle mass. Um, and in the brain, we slow down a little bit. In every decade after 40, our pure processing speed slows down, but it's compensated for by an increased ability to extract patterns from events, uh, from stories, um, an increased ability to solve problems, and an increased ability to experience empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, older adults might be slower, but for a number of things, they're better. So, There's some very interesting research into um,
2: multi-generational teams, because we're going to see probably four generations working in one workplace. And actually, if you get multi-generational teams working together, you find exactly that, which is younger people are more dynamic, they probably have more ideas, they're kind of faster. But older people have more experience and they're better at resolving conflict, apparently. So you can come out with a more productive group if you manage it, right?
3: And older adults are often better at predicting the outcome. Uh, Younger adults are more willing to take risks than older adults, but the older adults um, can look at all the different factors and synthesise, can better calculate the risk. Um, and I think the other thing is that uh, you know, we're talking about age diversity. In fact, teams with all forms of diversity are better at problem-solving mm-hmm. and at creativity. So uh, not just age diversity, but racial diversity, gender diversity, uh, diversity in socioeconomic status, LGBTQ+, all of yep. those things count.
2: And you you have a whole chapter on perception. Um, And clearly the brain, you referred to patterns, and the brain is very good at filling in information, isn't it? So, you know, there's a part of our retina, isn't there, which which doesn't have any cones or rods, and when we look at something, we're just filling in. We don't see a hole, we we fill it in because of our experience. And can you talk a bit more about how older people's experience actually helps them actually understand and analyse situations better?
3: This is a really interesting and nuanced point that you're making. Um, when we when a neuroscientist talks about perception, what we 're talking about is the chain of events by which your brain constructs a version of the reality that surrounds you. The input that comes in for your senses is often distorted or incomplete, and your brain has to fill in missing information. Um, just as an example, I could be talking and there could be a sudden noise that drowns out part of what I said, but the intelligibility of it isn't affected at all. Mm. You don't even realize that your brain filled in that missing speech sound. And in fact, in experiments, people aren't even very good. People are good at saying, yeah, there was a, a loud noise, but they're not good at telling you where in the word it was because the brain has been so efficient it's just it in. in filling it in. Yeah. Um, this filling in is based on experience. Infants and toddlers are not particularly good at it. It's based on having seen and heard uh, and felt and smelled and tasted a whole bunch of things in your life. But let's mostly talk about hearing and and vision, which we know the most about. Um, As you say, our eyes are filling in information all the time. Um, There's an evolutionary reason. You know, if you, you know, tens of thousands of years ago saw a tiger that was behind some trees and so you didn't actually see the full body, you saw like a head here and part of a trunk here and part of a tail there, it would have been evolutionarily adaptive for your visual system to tell you that's actually a whole tiger, it's not three parts of a tiger. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Uh, And it does this so automatically and seamlessly we don't notice it. Uh, With increasing age we get much, much better at perceptual completion um, which kind of compensates for hearing loss and vision loss.
2: And, and what does that mean for lifelong learning? Because, you know, if older people are actually better at reading some of those patterns, does it mean that we should be teaching, we can teach, old, clearly we can teach older people, should we be teaching them in a different way? Do their brains respond slightly differently?
3: Well, so um, younger adults are more likely to pay attention to what's actually hitting their senses... Older adults are more likely to pay attention to these inferences that the brain is making. Older adults spend more time in their heads than younger adults who spend more time in the sensory hedonic, uh, the, the world of, of physical experience and pleasure, as a generalization. There are, there are differences, of course. But what this means is that if an older adult loses their keys, you know, they're not out there in the world as much looking at where they place them they've got a bunch of stuff going on in their head like I've got to buy milk and uh, I have to remember to call back uh, my sister and you know you put the keys down and you don't remember but in terms of learning uh, it it suggests that when we're teaching older adults new things that require a real attention to the environment learning a new language, learning Mm. a new Mm. instrument we need to um, Understand that these kinds of things are going to take a little more time. But so still let's possible. come on to that because that's part of
2: what we need to do to keep our brains sharp, isn't it? It's challenging ourselves to do really, really difficult things, and there's been a lot of work on this. Is that you know actually, unfortunately. You know, we get to a certain... If you're successful, you know, you get to 50... And you're kind of enjoying running the same committee... Or doing the same thing better and better. But the, ev- the neuroscience evidence is that you really have to do something really hard, don't you? And learning an instrument is clearly one of those.
3: Yeah, the, the, the idea here has to do with a... Um, I don't mean to use jargon, but in my field... And you may encounter the term. It's called cognitive reserve. And it's basically like this. If you're a weightlifter and you can lift 400 pounds... Um, if you're having a bad day and you uh, are hungover or whatever, you can still lift a hundred better than most people. You've got this excess capacity. And the brain is the same way. If you're constantly learning new things, if you engage with the world with curiosity and openness to learning new things, pushing yourself outside your comfort zone, which is particularly important after age 60 or so, you're going to be building up cognitive reserve. You're going to be building new pathways. If you've heard the phrase neuroplasticity, that's just a fancy word for the brain making new connections. And it's a myth that we stop doing that at a certain age. You make new connections all throughout the life, up to the day you die, your brain is making new connections. Mm. Every time you have a new conversation, that's a new connection. A new food, that's a new connection. (laughs) Pushing yourself to difficult things, like uh, learning a new language, playing a new instrument, or even just learning new things on your existing instrument. It reminds me um, of uh, Pablo Casals. Uh, Any of you know the name Pablo Casals? Great cellist, perhaps one of the great musicians who ever lived. Uh, He lived into his uh, late 80s, and during an interview he was 84, and a journalist said, Maestro, why are you practicing? You've played every piece for the cello. You've toured with all the major orchestras. Why are you still practicing at your age? And he says, because I want to get better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I
2: mean, I think, that, I suppose the context to this is that neuroscience in the last, what, decade, really, has told us so, I mean, has overturned, hasn't it, so many of the myths. So the whole thing about neuroplasticity is so important to understand because we still have employers who won't train anybody over the age of 50 because the assumption is old dogs can't learn new tricks. I mean, that's such an embedded assumption in our society. As you say, we we go on with neurogenesis, we keep creating new neurons, and we can embed those into the functional circuits of the brain. But we we sort of, our society has not accepted that yet, has it?
3: Right. There's a false societal narrative Mm uh, For one thing, uh, it's true, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but we're not dogs. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Um, And um, we are learning up to the very end if we choose to, and those of us who do choose to are going to find that learning to be neurally protective uh, against uh, things like... uh, It's not that it will put off Alzheimer's or dementia, but it'll put you in a position where you and, and the people you, who are around you won't notice it because you've got all this reserve. Um, the societal narrative hasn't kept pace with science um, and, you know, part of it is that we are living longer and healthier yeah. than ever before. Maybe 40 years ago, it was true. You couldn't teach older people new things because yeah. they hadn't lived lives that were as healthy They had lives that were marked by um, the stresses of uh, world wars and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we didn't talk about stress management for decades, Um, but we are living longer and healthier. In fact, in 2018, as you may know, for the first time in history, there were more people in the UK over the age of 75 than under the age of 5 for the first time in history. And, so you, and, you know, we're living longer than ever before. There are more uh, septuagenarians and octogenarians than ever before. There are more people alive on the planet over the age of 80 than at any time in Absolutely. history. Yeah, yeah. So you may have heard the expression, children are our future. They're not. <laughs> old people are. <laughs>
2: yeah. Lots and lots of old people. Yeah, I mean, actually, Dan, I mean, I think that the changing ratio of young to old means we have to rethink the very notion of family because we are not going to rely on children and we're going to have to build completely new support networks. And what you do see all over the world, certainly the countries I've been to, you see ordinary people building completely different support networks. So in Germany, there is an adoption service where grandparents are adopting single-parent families who are no relation to them at all which, of course, is brilliant, because it's a win-win for both sides. But, but they've broken that link with blood relatives. Anyway, just, it's an interesting point.
3: Well, we see it in Canada, uh, in Toronto, which has a housing crisis. Right. There are these new combination dormitory senior living facilities where college students live with seniors, and they help each other out, mm. and they mm. get to know each other. Um, and, you know, the, this whole idea of thinking of old age as a time of wisdom and value... Uh, has been part of indigenous cultures and Japanese culture for a long, long time. Yes. And the older adults in those cultures uh, tend to live better and f- they feel more valued and they are. In terms of what people in the
2: room can do, um, let's just come back to that for a second. So, I mean, completely right. So when I wrote my book, I looked at the learning an instrument you know, evidence and, I, you know, and the learning a language evidence. and Then I thought, well, look, quite a lot of people don't really want to do that. And if you haven't got a reason to learn a language, sitting on your own trying to learn a language to improve your brain is a bit difficult. So I also looked at brain training apps. Now, you're very sceptical about those, and so am I, and we've read the you know, similar research. Um, but there are one or two, I think, that may work, potentially. There's something called useful field of view training. There's been a couple of studies, 10-year studies, the active trial. So... And most of them, I agree, are going to be rubbish. You're going to be sold an awful lot of stuff online that will tell you to play a game and you'll get better and it probably isn't going to work. But do you think there is any prospect for brain training apps
3: to a scientist, avoid
2: having to learn a light
3: language? Yes. Well, I think there's, there's prospects. Uh, I don't think there's a, enough scientific evidence for me as a scientist to say, yes, you should do it. Of course, some things don't hurt. Uh, For example, there's no evidence that doing crossword puzzles or Sudoku (laughs) will help you uh, with memory or with anything else. You get better at them, and that's the only thing you get better at. Mm. You get better at doing crosswords. Um, But, you know, if you enjoy doing them, there's no harm. And there are a couple of brain training games uh, that have been shown to produce, by my reading, modest results. But they... You know, they haven't been replicated in a number of different labs and a number of different populations. So I don't want to mm-hmm. say science says yet. No, no. But I don't think those games hurt other than your pocketbook, your wallet. Uh, well, or they might stop you spending
2: time doing, walking they, up a mountain or doing the other things.
3: Or, they, yeah, they, well, they could hurt if they stop you from doing things that we know will help.
2: Can I ask you about mindset? Because clearly, you know, we've got these amazingly plastic brains and we can develop... Can we change our mindsets? And how important is our to the way we age?
3: Well, so um, you can't control what's going to happen to you. You can't control what the universe throws at you. But you can control how you're going to respond to those things. And certain qualities, uh, personality traits, if you want to call them that, but qualities like resilience, curiosity, conscientiousness, Uh, ...turn out to be huge predictors of how well we're going to do at any age. Uh, Conscientious kids don't cross against the light, and so they're less likely to get hit by a bus. Uh, Conscientious adults are less likely to end up in prison. Uh, People who are resilient are less likely to suffer the effects of acute or chronic stress... Um, the good news is that although these qualities are unevenly distributed across the population, you can change them at any yeah. age. Uh, you can change your mindset, you can change your personality. Some people find it easy, some people find it a lot of work. And there's no one way to do it that works for everybody, but the, the big, the top, top ones are psychotherapy. Psychotherapy works. Not every therapist is good, not every therapist is going to be a good match for you, but psychotherapy really does work, um, and um, meditation works for some people. Uh, yoga, uh, having a, an inspirational uh, mentor or even role model, can you can say, oh, I want to be like that, and you, know, you, you try to emulate that quality in a person. Literature and art forms often inspire us to make changes. And then finally, there's medication. And um, we've seen increasingly that certain medications can restore a sense of resilience or curiosity Mm. or enhance these qualities that we might find hard to implement in our lives, especially among older adults. And do you think then that there is a
2: happiness set point? Some people talk about a happiness set point. You know, we're all sort of pessimists or optimists and we kind of, whatever our situation, if we win the lottery, we're still not happy if we're a pessimist. Do you think we have a fixed happiness set point or can we change that?
3: Well, I think we can change that. Certainly, the the ideal um, point of happiness, the most obvious way to change it is to follow the advice of the Dalai Lama and Warren Buffett now think about that for a minute <laughs> think about two more different people uh, the Dalai Lama who lives his life as, an, asc- seat, as an, asc- seat, uh, an ascetic monk and Warren Buffett, who's one of the richest people in the world but the one piece of advice they agree on is the key to happiness is to be grateful for what you have yeah. and not focus on what you don't right. and that changes the happiness set point dramatically Right, and they both get a lot of sleep they both get a lot which of sleep. Is also, yeah.
2: Yeah. You have a whole chapter about sleep, I think, in your book, yeah. which is clearly absolutely vital. And in fact, if we only got more sleep, probably a lot of the other problems would go away.
3: It's true, and in yeah. fact, a lot of times when people go to their doctors uh, and they're afraid they've got Alzheimer's because of memory impairment, yeah. it's simply sleep deprivation. Yeah. You get them a good night's sleep, and the memory deficits go away.
1: Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to hear the other parts of this discussion, head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.